Thank you, Landon and Alex, for that great time of worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in our lives and your care for us. We pray for the many people that are struggling in many ways because of this pandemic, because of loss of job, the loss of family members, all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of situations this has caused. And Father, we ask that you would be our comfort, that you would be our peace that passes understanding, that you would be with us in this time of struggle and difficulty. And Father, we thank you because the promise says you said you would never leave us and that you would never forsake us. And Father, we thank you for your involvement, your care, your comfort in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you this morning on this great day, and thank you for joining with us. We're excited today to have you with us, and uh, we're just about to the time where we're going to be having uh, services again. Our first service will be June the 7th. We're actually going to have a worship night on May the 31st, and I want to encourage you, you should have received today your e-bulletin, and I know it'll be a great struggle for many of you to go and open up that e-bulletin and actually read an email, but I want to challenge you to, to, to battle through and uh, read that email, and in that email there are instructions about what we're going to have to do to be able to meet on that evening of the 31st. And here's a couple of things. I'm gonna give you some of the info, but it's all there in the link uh, that, that is on the eBranch. First of all, we will have a limited crowd uh, because we have to uh, abide by the 50% guidelines. So we are going to require that you RSVP. And there is a link there on the, on, in the eBranch where you can follow that link and register for the event so we will know how many are coming, how we're going to situate chairs and all of that. Then secondly, we ask that everyone wear a mask. Uh, uh, and I know that that's a challenge. You know, uh, not everyone can wear a mask. We understand that there are special circumstances where someone for some health reason may not be able to wear a mask or uh, they may have children that, would, that they would have difficulty keeping a mask on. Uh, you, you may still may attend, but we you know with minor exceptions, we, we want everyone to be protected as much as possible. Uh, and we know you want to get together and we know you want to see each other, but we also want to require, continue to require social distancing that you, we want you to stay six feet apart. So when, when you come together, we're going to allow you to sit together with people that you have quarantined uh, together with. So some of you have been around people these last couple of months. And some of them are family, some of them are even outside your family, but you've spent time with them, so you've quarantined with them. If you have, you can sit with them. We will have half the chairs in the auditorium. The rows will be spread out. And, uh, and so we'll ask you to not uh, sit too close, that you'll put a space between two chairs between you and another group. Uh, there will no, be no child care provided, uh, but f feel free to bring a tablet or some other form of entertainment for your child. Uh, during that time, uh, during the worship night, we will not have special things for the children. On, on, when we gather back together, uh, both uh, Courtney in our preschool area and Shelly in our middle school area, our elementary age area, they will be doing a little bit to, to, to speak to the kids. We're going to continue to produce the videos that you can access for the children. And, and of course, our services will be live 
so no childcare. There, there won't be any drinks or donuts. Uh, <laughs> there won't be any goodies provided. And of course, if you have any symptoms of uh, a high fever or any coughing, we ask you to stay home. Or if you have, if you are concerned at all, just continue to enjoy uh, our services online. We will continue to do that. We will continue to stream our services as, as we have. And uh, we look forward to a great time. We look forward. To, we're ready. Is everybody ready to gather together and be together again in the house of God? I'm so looking forward to it. So tonight we have a really great, a really great gift. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world is coming to speak. My, my son-in-law, but or my son, spiritual son, Tim Seawalt is going to come and preach to us today. So welcome him. All right, all right, hold your applause. It's okay, I can't hear it. Anyways, well, good morning, LCC. It's so good to see you. Gosh, I miss you guys. I miss hearing you guys laugh at me when I'm trying to figure out what the heck the announcements are on Sundays, and I could really use that in my life some more. And then I was just thinking about it as Randy was making that announcement. This is how I look from the eyes up. So it's not some creepy guy just watching you, it's me, and I'm smiling, and I'm excited to see you, but I can't touch you because of the, the masks and stuff. So that's me. Okay, so don't be alarmed. And I can't wait to air hug you. Maybe I'll be doing this. So anyways, I miss you guys. All right, so <clears throat> we just finished up Just Like Jesus. And I hope that you were as blessed as I was by Randy and William's messages about the life of Christ and his example that he gave to us to live by and how we can live and be more and more like Jesus. So we're going to go back to the life of David uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off in 2 Samuel chapter 13. But first I'm going to do a little short recap to kind of set the scene. So David now is the king of Israel. <clears throat> he's gone through the whole running from Saul. Saul is now dead, and now he's the king of Israel. He's been king for a while. He's a successful king. He's a winner. He wins his wars, defeats Israel's enemies. He's a just king. He's a good king, and he loves God, and he enjoys the blessings of God in his life. Um, he's brought prosperity to Israel. They're kind of considered a world power in their region, and uh, he's brought prosperity and blessing to the kingdom of Israel uh, by the way that he's king and God's blessing on his life. But <clears throat> there's one season when kings are supposed to go to war, and I guess it's war season. I guess they had that back then. We we have a, we've got hurricane season, so I can kind of, I get that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty serious. But uh, <clears throat> David decides, I'm going to stay home. I need a break. I'm not, I'm not going to war season. And uh, so because of boredom and maybe a loss of focus, he ends up being given over to lust and uh, really messing up his life. And Randy preached on this. I hope you remember the title of it. It's called Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, I had a really good laugh from that title. But anyways, he ends up pretty much being a peeping Tom. And he ends up watching one of his most loyal warriors and servants, wife, bathe from his rooftop and then he decides hey I need to sleep with her and because he's king big successful big king David he decides I deserve this and he sleeps with Bathsheba and then she gets pregnant 
And David tries a couple different ways to cover it up, to keep Uriah, his faithful and loyal servant, from finding out that his king decided he wanted to sleep with his wife. But in the end, David devises uh, the most cowardly plan, I think, that I've heard of, and he uses the whole Israeli army to allow Uriah to be killed by their enemies. So, God could have been done with David, because, I mean, how twisted is that? You're a king, you have everything that you'd ever need. You have seven wives, multiple concubines. Uh, There's no lack of uh, sexual gratification in your life, but you decide to take one of your most loyal and humble servant's wife, she gets pregnant, and in the end you have him killed to cover up your sin. So God could have been done with David, and I think a lot of us would have been done with David, but God's not, and he pursues David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, he uses the prophet Nathan to confront David's sin. And then David confronted with his sin. It's all out in the open. He repents. God forgives him, but God says that he's going to reap what he's sown and that there's going to be consequences for what he's done and the sin that he's, he's uh, brought into his life. So even though God has forgiven and restored David's relationship with him, he's still going to reap the consequences of his actions. And God says the first consequence is going to be that they're going to lose this baby that Bathsheba is pregnant with. And God's word comes to pass. They lose the child. Um, But then God provides them with the second son who later becomes King Solomon. So that brings us to chapter 13 in 2 Samuel. Okay, and so this this is a story of more of the consequences materializing in David's life. And it's God's word coming to pass. So, I'm going to go ahead and read it. David had a son named Absalom and a son named Amnon. Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon loved her. And when it says he loved her, this is not love. This is lust. And in different translations and different commentaries, uh, it's pretty specific that this is lust. This is not love. Just throwing that out there. Okay, so Tamar was a virgin. Amnon made himself sick just thinking about her because he could not find any chance to be alone with her. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. I think that's how you say it. Son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very clever man. And he said to him, Son of the king, why do you look so sad day after day? Tell me what's wrong. Amnon told him, I love Tamar, the sister of my half-brother, Absalom. Jonadab said, Amnon, go to bed and act as if you are sick. Then your father will come to see you. Tell him, please let my sister Tamar come in and give me food to eat. Let her make the food in front of me so I can watch and eat it from her hand. I'm going to say something. That's weird. I don't care what time, ancient or modern, that's strange, and it's a twisted plan, and it ought to throw some red flags up immediately, then and now. So Amnon says, hey, that sounds like a good idea. So he goes to bed, and he acted sick. When King David came in to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come in. Let her make two of her special cakes for me while I watch. Then I will eat them from her hands. David sent for Tamar, 
in the palace saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and make him some food. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was in bed. Tamar took some dough, pressed it together with her hands. She made some special cakes while Amnon watched. Then she baked them. Next she took the pan and served him, but he refused to eat. He said to his servants, all of you leave me alone. So they all left him alone. Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to her brother Amnon in the bedroom. She went to him so he could eat from her hands. But Amnon grabbed her and said, sister, come have sexual relations with me. Tamar said to him, no brother, don't force me. This should never be done in Israel. Don't you do this same shameful thing. I could never get rid of my shame and you would be like the shameful fools in Israel. Please talk with the king and he will let you marry me. But Amnon refused to listen to her and he was stronger than she was. So he forced her to have sexual relations with him. And after that, Amnon hated Tamar. He hated her more than he had ever loved her before because it wasn't real love, it was lust. Amnon said to her, get up and leave. Tamar said to him, no, sending me away like this would be worse than what you've already done. But he refused to listen to her. He called his young servant back in and said, get this woman out of here and away from me. Lock the door after her. So his servant let her out of the room and bolted the door after her. So I'm going to stop right here. So what, what this does and the way that he, he um, gets rid of Tamar is even worse than what he's done because it makes it look like this is Tamar's fault, that she came onto him, that it was her indiscretion <clears throat> that made this event happen. And in that day and age, who are we going to believe, a man or a woman? And does that sound familiar even today? Yeah. And thank God we've made some progress and uh, we're, well, thank God we're making progress. And it's part of the reason we have the Me Too movement. Anyways, I was just going to say that, little commentary. So Tamar was wearing a special robe with long sleeves because the king's virgin daughters wore this kind of robe to show how upset she was. She put ashes on her head and tore her special robe and put her hand on her head. Then she went away crying loudly, Absalom. Tamar's brother said to her, has Amnon, your brother, forced you to have sexual relations with him? For now, sister, be quiet. He is your half-brother. Don't let this upset you so much. So Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house and was sad and lonely and desolate. When King David heard the news, he was very angry. Absalom did not say a word, good or bad, to Amnon or about Amnon, but he hated Amnon for disgracing his sister Tamar. Two years later, Absalom had some men come up from Baal Hazar near Ephraim to cut the wool from his sheep. Absalom invited all the king's son to come also. Absalom went to the king and said, I have men coming to cut the wool. Please come with me and your officers to join me. King David said to Absalom, no, my son, we won't all go because it would be too much trouble for you. Although Absalom begged David, he wouldn't go but he did give his blessing. Absalom said, if you don't want to come, then please let my brother Amnon come with us. King David asked, why should he go with you? Absalom kept begging David until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with Absalom. Then Absalom instructed his servants, watch Amnon. When he is drunk, I will tell you, I'll give the order to kill Amnon. Right then, kill him. Don't be afraid because I've commanded you. Be strong and brave. So Absalom's young men killed Amnon as Absalom commanded, but all of David's other sons got on their mules and escaped. So, for this, 
Absalom is banished, and in the end, David loses not only Amnon, but Absalom and his daughter Tamar. Wow, what a horrible story, right? I know what you're thinking. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That was really good. Thanks, thanks for encouraging me with that, that awful story. But it's in the Bible. And it's the word of God. And why is it? Because it's real. And that's what humans do to each other. And you probably know some people in some screwed up situations that have lived through that. You probably know some dysfunctional families. And so the, that's what I love about the word of God is that it's, it's for all of us. It's for today. It's for your life and it's for my life, just like it is for their lives. God has an answer for you and God has something to teach you through his word and an answer for you and your life today. So it's real, it's real stuff. So where's David in all this? Well, he's just recently screwed up, right? He's, he just, he's reeling from his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, I don't know what the timeline is between this event and when he sinned with Bathsheba, but it's, it's pretty recent. And um, it seems to me that he's withdrawn and he's retreated. So in the middle of this crisis where he's needed, where, when he's needed most to be a father and to be involved and to be a good king, he's too busy wallowing in his own shame to do anything. So in this situation, David is not only reaping the destruction that he's sown in the one event with Bathsheba, but he's also reaping, um, he's reaping from the patterns of sin in his life and the patterns of sin that he's modeled for his family. Because that's kind of how sin works. It's not just the one event, but it's all the things that are in your heart leading up to that. And so he's reaping not only from his sin with Bathsheba, but the patterns in his life. So we, let's look at some of those patterns. There's one obvious one, a pattern of not valuing and treating women well. For the time, it's normal, right? That's the ancient world. Women were possessions. Uh, they were a means to an end. But that still wasn't God's plan. And so even today, don't confuse the cultural norm and what's lawful with what pleases God. Uh, David had seven wives and numerous concubines. Uh, they aren't, the concubines aren't actually numbered, so you know there was a lot. Um, concubines were women that did not have the status of a wife, but they were used for sex, and the king could have no, if, if the king couldn't have heirs with his regular wives, he'd use uh, an heir from a concubine. So um, a lot of this, the whole concubine thing, and having seven wives is created from the pursuit of man's lust for sexual gratification. So there's an underlying theme here. Not valuing women, chasing after the lust of the flesh, uh, seeing women as a means to an end just to be uh, for sexual gratification and as, as possession. Uh, God didn't say thou shall not have more than one wife. He didn't say that, but he doesn't have to because God modeled his plan for marriage in Genesis. And any time we humans modify it, it's screwed up. It causes problems. And you can see it over and over in the Bible. You just read, read any story about a man who has multiple wives, and you're going to see multiple problems. Um, it, was, it was common to have more than one wife, but it was also common to have a lot of dysfunction in families and jealousy and strife and feuding. 
So God has a perfect plan for marriage and family, and that's one man and one woman. But that is another sermon, and I can get way deep into that. But I just wanted to say that. God does have a perfect plan for marriage, and it's one man and one woman. And it's not seven women. So Amnon is, in his own way, looking at his father David, and he's walking out what he sees his culture and what's been modeled to him by his own father. Another pattern of sin in David's life was a pattern of entitlement and pride. Um, it wasn't just that first event when he was on the roof with Bathsheba when he decided, you know what, I'm king. I deserve this. Uh, there was a pattern of, of him being entitled and forgetting from where he came from and not being humble before the Lord. And so his sons had seen that in him too. Um, Amnon said pretty much, who cares if being with my sister is wrong? I'm a son of David. I deserve this. I need this. He calls the shot. Looks, he makes his own rules. He does what he wants. So, you know, Amnon is just following in that. Um, there's another pattern of being disengaged with his children. I mean, when, when you have seven wives and multiple concubines, and then the scandal that you're dealing with, and then having a kingdom, uh, David really didn't have a pulse on what was going on in his house. I mean, what, do you think that if he, because uh, David was known as being an affectionate father, but if he had had the attention that he needed for his kids, maybe he would have known what was going on between Amnon and Tamar. That, because there's, it says that Amnon loved Tamar and was ill and sick over her and obsessed over her. And so this wasn't happening just for, you know, 10 minutes. This was happening for a while and it was happening in the house. Absalom even know, knew what, what was going on because he said, hey, has uh, Amnon uh, forced you? So it was, it was known, but David didn't know it. So he was out of touch with what was going on in his house. Um, and sometimes that happens with us. We fill our lives with too much and we get stuck. Uh, we spread ourselves a little too thin. We lose track of the people in our life. And so it kind of gives us an opportunity to ask a question, what are we married to? Are we devoted to the things and the people that God has put in our lives or the things we've added to our plate? It's just something to think about. So when all these events go down, what does David do? It says he gets angry. That's it. He gets angry. Doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. He's silent. So why? Where is he in all this? Well, this is what I think, and this is my perception and how I'm, I'm reading maybe where David was at. I think he's sitting back, he's saying, who am I to judge? Look what I've done. This is what I deserve. I'm doing good just to have a relationship with God. I might barely make it in as it is. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that self-talk sound familiar to you? Because it sounds familiar to me. Because that's, that's what I've told myself before when I've failed, when I'm getting up, when I'm reeling from my shame. Or is he saying, if I say something, all they're gonna say is, you're one to talk, and they'll bring up all my sin again and just rub it in my face. So David's hiding. He's retreated. He's still appalled with himself, and he's wallowing in his shame and guilt. But this is what I want us to get from this. We all fail. We are all going to reap the consequences of our sins in some way. 
But when God forgives us and restores us to himself, we don't walk alone. Even when we're facing the consequences of our own actions and our failures, some of us are even reaping the failures and the actions of our fathers, but we're not walking alone. We don't walk alone anymore. So Romans 8, 28 through 37 says this. I'm gonna read through this. And honestly, sometimes I feel like Paul could just handle the preaching for me. So I'm just gonna read it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, our hardship, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We aren't just scraping into the kingdom here. We didn't just barely escape sin, guys. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. We're not in ourselves anymore, but through him, we are conquerors, and he loves us. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 10, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpass surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So God's given us this gift that we didn't just barely escape our sin, that we're gonna be conquerors, that we're gonna be victorious over our sins. And in verse 10, it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do them. We're forgiven and redeemed to get up and do good things that God's planned for us. We're not forgiven and redeemed just to sit on the sidelines and say, hey, I'm barely gonna make it. No, we're not gonna retreat and hide. That's not what God's called us to do. But he also didn't erase our lives when we became Christians. And he doesn't erase our actions when we fall down and then we turn back to him. God doesn't do that. And that's, he does that on purpose because he wants us to move forward in his plan. Uh, we were made to put, put Christ on and move forward according to his new plan so that our lives become to the praise of his glory. So people say, hey, look at that guy. Man, he really made a mess of his life, but somehow he's walking through it and he has joy and he, he's living with a new life and he's changing the world. He's impacting people and he's, He's sowing life and he's bringing other people to more life. What's up with that? And the world's gonna say, there's something going on there. I want that. And that's, that's how God does things. And that's how God uses our failures. Um, 
and it's not our plan for our life anymore. We don't have to sit around and figure out how we're gonna make the mess we've made of our life work for God. God has a plan and we can trust him fully in it. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he reap. For the one who sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will, from the spirit reap eternal life. Well, here's the news. Here's the good news. That wherever you are right now, even in your failure, even while you're reaping the consequences of your failure, you can sow life. You can sow life right now in the midst of living and the consequences of your failure. So how do we do this? Don't hide from your failure. Don't retreat. Don't sideline yourself. Face your failure head on in the light of your identity in Christ because that's the only way to face your failure. If, if, if that's not it, then we kind of, we're born, we make a mess of our lives and we die and that's it. But in Christ, we have an identity where we move forward in his new plan for our life. Um, so what this might take is repenting openly over and over. Repenting openly to your family if you need to. Um, that's part of not hiding from your failure. Uh, committing to restoring trust. That's how you can sow life right now where you are. And it's in a hard place to be, to, to be where nobody trusts you, that your reputation is, is nothing. And you're trying to pick your life back up together again and walk forward. Nobody trusts you? Well, the way you sow life is to commit restoring trust. Um, adjust your walk and acknowledge your past as a way that you can sow life. Um, because of what people think of you when you get up from, from a failure, it's kind of hard to adjust your walk because um, they could say, well, weren't you the guy who did this? Or weren't you the guy who believed this? Or weren't you the guy who said this? But here's the great thing. We don't have to walk in our own righteousness. We get to put on Christ, put on his righteousness, and walk forward. And we can do the things that we know are right, and we can live according to his plan, and we can agree with God. And then we can also agree with the people and say, yeah, I did used to do that. I did used to think that way. Um, so another way we can do that is to stand up for what's right. Even if you hear you're one to talk, even if it's not popular, even if it's something that you have accepted in the past and something that you've accepted for most of your life. Maybe it's a cultural thing that you've accepted, but now you've had an encounter with Christ and you know that's wrong now. Um, you know, maybe you're seeing someone being treated badly and you stand up and say, you know what? God loves that person and I don't believe God wants him to be treated that way. He loves him dearly. He's a child of God and it doesn't matter what color his skin is. It doesn't matter what gender they are. And it doesn't matter that I used to believe that and that there was a difference between us because I've had an encounter with God who's my creator and who's his creator and I now know that he's loved dearly by God. That's a way that you can sow life right where you're at and you can give an answer to your failure. And don't make the mistake, even though that might be uncomfortable, of confusing your comfort level with God's will for you and his kingdom. Uh, another way is uh, to sow life is to look at your life 
and pray to see the good works that God has laid out before you today to do. Um, for those of us who are parents, the good work that God's laid in front of you to do today is to be a good father, a good mother, to teach them the way of the Lord, to teach them to walk, to pray for them, to pray that they meet Jesus early and walk with them early in life. Um, there's people in your workplace that you need to impact. You can sow life just by doing a good job at work and having a great attitude. One of the great examples uh, of this in the Bible, of being able to sow life even in the midst of your failure, is Paul. And what made Paul such a great teacher and what helped him make such a great impact is that he was really good about talking about his failures and shortcomings in the light of the grace that he'd received in coming to Christ. Because God saved him on his way, uh, on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to kill Christians. And he had a history of uh, persecuting Christians and having them beat, having some of them killed. Uh, he was involved in holding people's coats while they uh, stoned Christians. So God saves Paul on his way to do this and Paul repents and his life has changed. And God forgives Paul, but he also didn't erase Paul's past. He didn't go, boom, all that other stuff you did, it's gone. No, he had to walk through it. He had to overcome it. And don't you think that people had a problem with this guy that used to beat and persecute them? Uh, there, there's, there was people all over the Christian world in that time because there wasn't that many that had had relatives that were killed because of Paul, thrown in jail because of Paul. And now they're hearing, wait a minute, he's one of us now? People had trust issues. And I mean, wouldn't you? So God, God had to work with Paul to restore trust in his life. But Paul didn't sideline himself. He didn't say, well, maybe in 30 years when people forget, or, you know, well, I'm doing good just to have a relationship with, with you, Lord. That's good enough for me. Um, I'm doing good just to kind of escape, you know, live under the radar. No, Paul starts sowing life where he's at, even in the midst of the consequences that he was reaping for his life before Christ. Um, he was really open about his phony self-righteousness. In Philippians chapter three, he said, all these things being the uh, Pharisee of Pharisee, the, the Jew of Jew, fulfilling all the requirements of the law, everything that I, I thought made me better, I'm counting them as crap compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him and his righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 15, nine through 10, he says, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So just like it does with us, it took time for Paul to overcome his past. But by the grace of God, he did it. And he changed the world. And guess what? God wants to change your world. And he's got big plans for you too. If you've sign lied in yourself because of your failures or to escape scrutiny because of your past, your past has you hostage. And that's not the overcoming freedom that Jesus died so that you could have. Jesus died to make you free to walk upright and with him through everything in your life. The good and the bad, whether the troubles are your fault or not, so that your life can be to the praise of his glory. Your sin and your failures are not too great for him. 
They're not. The victory in all this is that Jesus is gonna use your life and your failures and your experience to reach the people he's put in your life. So don't hide. Don't miss the opportunities God's put in front of you. See, David really failed miserably here. He missed out on a lot of opportunities to do right, to do good for his family and for the nation of Israel. Just like we do in our lives, we miss a lot of opportunities to do, to do good and to sow life. But God still loved David. David was still his man. He was still a man after God's heart. He was still chosen. And God still used him mightily throughout his life. And David was also a part of our heritage with writing the Psalms, uh, studying his life. Uh, God has used David even today to bring us closer to himself. And God also used David uh, as part of the plan to bring Jesus into the world. So wherever you and I are at right now, we are dearly loved by God. And he's got big plans for us. Our best days are ahead of us. They're not behind us. We're not walking alone through our lives anymore. We've got a God who's working all things, even our past, even our mistakes, so that our lives will end up victorious into the praise of his glory. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, today I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what we declare over our lives because we're Christians. That's what we declare over our lives because, because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. It's no longer us who lives. It's not our plans. We don't have to make sense of the mess of our life. We can fully and confidently trust in Jesus to use us and to change our world. So let's ask the Lord this week, how can I sow life right now where I am? Even in the midst of picking my life back up together again, how can I sow life? Because God's not finished with you. He's just getting started. He is with you and me. Our best days are ahead of us. So I'm gonna pray. Lord, we just ask you, wherever we are right now, that you would encourage us and help us to know that you love us and that you saved us not just to barely escape sin, but to be victorious and to be overcomers, to be conquerors. That even the failures and the, and the, the biggest things in our life, the things we're most ashamed of in our life, can be victories because of you, because of the way that our life is gonna look different and the testimony that we have through that and how you've changed us and how we can reach out to other people and give other people hope. Lord, I just ask that you would be with us this week and you would speak to us, God, that we wouldn't miss any opportunity to sow life right where we are. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love you guys. I miss you. I cannot wait to see you and air hug you. Hope you have a great week.